Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Okay, well, welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. I am excited to uh, broaden our uh, um, uh, kind of format here in not only using video, but actually now having a uh, three-person podcast. So I want to welcome Daniel Robin and Scott Donachi here to the episode. Hey, guys. Hello. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Absolutely. And, and, and super excited here uh, because we're actually at the tail end of the year. Uh, we're going to be talking about circularity, sustainability, and all the effects in the supply chain. And, and, and you know, this is really stemming from Scott's work with uh, um, Zero Waste. Uh, and then as an advisor to Zero Waste, Daniel uh, is an investor also in the space, but I'll get let both of them kind of give their backgrounds here. Um, but, uh, you know, let's start with uh, just a quick intro, and maybe I'm going to start with you, Scott. I'd uh, love to hear a little bit about yourself and, and, and actually about Zero Waste, too, and how you kind of got into that. Yeah, sure. So thank you so much. It's an honor to work with you and be on this podcast with both of you gentlemen today. Um, yeah, so I launched Companies for Zero Waste two years ago. Um, I have a background working on Wall Street, running hedge fund meetings for raising capital and um, worked in banking for 10 years. Um, got pretty burnt out on it. I've always had a real big passion for the environment. Uh, one of my really good friends that lives here in New Jersey has a company which is called Java's Compost. And he launched that company a few years ago and they, do, they go door to door uh, collecting compost for residences and they're moving into uh, businesses. But I saw the struggles that he had with his business in New Jersey with a lot of the uh, regulations and, and rules and uh, really prohibiting him from expanding his business. Um, and I did a lot of research and found out that just in New Jersey, there's over 400 dormant landfills and there's a huge issue with, uh, with waste. So doing that due diligence really just saw the opportunity with my background in running these meetings on Wall Street why can't we do something similar um, that would drive and really accelerate the whole movement towards um, zero waste and, and connect the right people, just get the right people that can come in, the investors, the policymakers, the regulators, supply chain directors, so that we really can start understanding that waste needs to be redefined as resource optimization and we need to change our lens and um, yeah, just been really a great journey for the last two years. And I'm super excited about next year and, and the things that are on the horizon. So thank you. That's a quick background. Yeah. Yeah. And Scott, that's a great background. And let me let me double click on that for a second because your timing probably couldn't have been much better. I mean, it's not like recycling and circularity and sustainability haven't been conversational, almost like global warming or global cooling or climate change or whatever has been a topic of conversation, but hasn't really, the teeth haven't kind of gotten sunk in until recently. And arguably in the last few years, I think you've seen a different uh, uh, inertia, momentum, you know, building around this. So talk about your timing and what you've kind of learned the last few years in starting Zero Waste, um, you know, and your experience there. Because I, I don't know if you started Zero Waste 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you would have had the same reception. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, when I started two years ago and started with just the phrase companies for Zero Waste or even saying Zero Waste, um, we, were, we were branded as, you know, maybe a special interest group 
or we were put into that bucket with the zero waste certification people that are out there with 90%, you know, landfill diversion. Um, and what's happened is that the market, you know, has changed in the last two years. And I really feel that zero waste is going mainstream. So you can mm -hmm. see, you know, companies like McDonald's now have a zero waste program and they're getting excited and they're working with, you know, companies that are out there like TerraCycle or, you know, they're starting to look at packaging differently. So I just like the fact that two years ago, when I mentioned zero waste, you know, and just to be straight up about it, corporations were running in the other direction, thinking that they may be vilified. Now they're embracing it and saying, all right, what can we learn from our peers and our supply chains? Maybe we, we don't want to keep it. So it's just us looking at our supply chain. Maybe we can learn and collaborate with other supply chain directors, CEOs, and, and people in operations and material engineers to find out how do we start doing business differently? So mm -hmm. I'm excited about it because people are now, you know, they're answering their emails or taking the calls and they want to find out how they get, how they can get involved. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a, a, a great segue. I don't know if you plan it that way to kind of go over to Daniel here and talk about how Daniel got involved with zero waste and also uh, your work, Daniel, as an investor, with In3 Group, um, love to hear about that. But from what I've looked at, it looks like it kind of dovetails exactly what Scott's talking about. You've got an organization that here is funding projects that may have these underlying environmental sustainability circularity goals. Um, you know, love to hear about you and your background and how you got introduced and involved with Scott and Zero Waste. Yeah, thanks, Richard. We've been involved in the uh, sustainability aspects uh, for mostly business folks since the 1990s. Uh, goes wow. all the way back into the late 1990s. At that time, there were some pretty significant gaps in the continuum of funding for new ventures, in particular new kinds of clean technologies. Actually, it wasn't called clean tech back in that day. We uh, we coined the phrase sustainable tech because it really right. wasn't a thing right. yet, right? And it's, the fact was then and still today that extracting inefficiency and waste is often really profitable. Mm -hmm. it, can, it can make more money than just incremental changes, improvements, lots of innovations on the market. But when you can take a resource that's currently a liability, and what is waste? It's displaced resources. It's, it's resources that got in the wrong place. But you can capture those and return those to some sort of part, part of the value chain, the supply chain, create a value out of a liability. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what got my company going back in the 90s. And we were addressing gaps and called myself a venture catalyst back in those days, trying to right. you know, help the younger companies that had good clean tech ideas that weren't really necessarily commercial ready. Mm -hmm. to get commercial, to commercialize those. And then it evolved to the point now where we've got solutions everywhere for the problems facing us. More innovations on the way. A lot of innovation now in business models rather than the fundamental tech. But mm -hmm. still technology innovations are going to have their place. And so we've scaled that up to the point where we're seeing mid-market project finance that makes a lot of sense. And the capital is available for this to scale and solve the critical problems of this world. It's kind of shocking to say it. So, well, if we've got the money, what, what do we need? Well, one thing we need is an understanding and collaboration and political will and business people mobilized to solve these problems. That's yeah, well, and, and let me let me kind of follow on with the same question I asked with Scott, because you've, again, got us 
30-year history where you've been looking at this. And something's changed in the last few years. You know, it's not like the mission statement that you started with in 1990 has changed all that much, right? But the, the reception you're getting, not only in, you know, sourcing funds for projects that are moving in sustainability circularity methods, um, but, you know, the, how people are looking at this, right? Like something, something changed mentally, philosophically, right? Because the same, the, what you just said, which is a leading point that I think we're going to get to is that sustainability and circularity is not a nice to have. It's actually a profit and margin improvement opportunity. And I don't know why it's taken so long for people to figure that out, but you're in a really cool spot, Daniel, to even kind of reflect on that. Like what's, what's happened, right? In the last few years, like what changed? It's an interesting parallel in the electric vehicle market, for example. Um, yeah, great, right, great. right. Whereas EVs have been around for a long time, and you know, golf carts and whatnot, right? Well, what's causing them to start finally to take off and gain more mainstream acceptance? Uh, a lot of things just take a long time to commercialize. I think you know the big limitation on EVs remains the storage. That's mm -hmm. also going to be changing and breaking through to something new. But of course, Tesla's been leading a lot of other players and a lot of other products. But if you look at the market penetration right now for electric vehicles, battery electrics in particular, okay. it's not there. And it right. needs to get there. And it's going to gradually right. you know, reach the scale that's necessary to actually make a difference and decarbonize the whole transportation scene. Mm -hmm. uh, electric and hybrids are happening more on buses. Mm -hmm. And you'll, soon you'll see more air travel that's right. And trucks, long-distance haul trucks, these things. And it just it depends on the sector and the economic drivers and inhibitors, I suppose. And what we're definitely looking forward to is the upswing. And recently, I can say, I don't know the exact causes. I'm not sure it's even been studied. Why? Mm -hmm. So much more consumer sentiment now for sustainability, circularity, cleaning things up. It has something to do with health, something mm -hmm. to do with the fact mm -hmm. that we are living in an ecosystem, right? And so the ecosystem... And, and we are in the symbiotic embrace, right? So if the, if the environment is not clean, neither can we be, right? right? And so I just, I don't know. I mean, I've seen the, what was it? Hurricane Katrina was an yep. interesting moment, right? That catalyzed a lot of folks' interest in and involvement and practice in sustainability, right? More concern about our long-term viability mm -hmm. as a species, you know, the planet will be fine. It'll recover. Right. In fact, uh, you may have observed yourselves. I've been seeing examples of this, and people talk about this a lot and during the COVID pandemic, right, with less commuters, right? right? So systems are uh, less strained, less air pollution, mm -hmm. hmm, cause and right. effect, right? right. So you've you got to wonder, you know, who, who, who in, is having this effect? We are, okay? Right. So the numbers the carrying capacity of the planet and so on. But um, I just, I, I've noticed it. Uh, there's been an incredible increase in interest in doing the right thing, mm -hmm. being responsible, mixed with the business side, creating good jobs, finding profitable models, you know, converting products into services. That's another good business model innovation. You don't really need a car. Yep. You need the services of a car, mobility and transportation, mm -hmm. Right. But it's that's a classic in some ways. It's called leasing, but there are mm -hmm. other right innovations on top of that. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, this is true in in my world. I'm sure in yours 
and Scots too, we, we all are much more interested in, in health and sustainability and wellness and taking care of ourselves and taking care of the planet goes right along with that. Yeah, totally agreed. And I think that's, uh, you know, I'm going to swing back to Scott here in a second, but the uh, you know, kind of, again, I think the underlying theme here is that without a doubt, and coming from an investor point of view, Daniel, coming from a kind of, I'll call it nonprofit think tank uh, consultancy, Scott, with zero waste, right, where you're kind of influencing, then I'm kind of coming at it from a practitioner point of view, you know, and building a platform. But there's no question that sustainability and circularity are not only top of mind, they're actually getting put into project plans within companies now. That's very yeah. different from before, right? So regardless of how we got here, that's, that's where we are today. So Scott, you know, in, in looking at what you're catalyzing in conversations within zero waste, you know, what's, what's happening now coming, you know, out of COVID? Like, what are your observations amongst your cohort of participants and what are they talking about in reaction to COVID, how has that emphasized the need to look at the supply chain and more specifically their asset disposition lifecycle management in the context of zero waste and circularity, right? How, you know, what's what's happening now coming at the close of 2020 within your community? What do you what are you hearing? What's going on? Well, I'm feeling, you know, when we um when we had a meeting a year ago, we had a big meeting in uh, Newark, New Jersey, and we had about 350 um as sustainability experts that came together, supply chain directors, CEOs. Um, I had a feeling that people were still just focused on what's in their wheelhouse. And when mm -hmm. I say that, um, if you got a supply chain director or someone who was working in, let's say, renewable energy, they wouldn't want to necessarily find out about, let's say, the textile industry. That's not in our wheelhouse. We have no interest. Mm -hmm. What I'm finding now, which is really pretty wonderful, is that people are starting to work outside of their supply chain and finding out from other companies, well, what, what are the issues that you're running into today? Um, you know, it seems like, for instance, like the fashion industry, everyone knows each other. Or if I go mm -hmm. into, elect, you know, um, let's say e-waste, they all know each other. It's a very small market, much smaller than I thought, because I look at like e-waste, this massive problem, and then I see there's three or four real thought leaders in the United States leading this space. And it's like, wow, mm -hmm. that's incredible. But what's happening now with this whole um, evolution of zero waste is that now companies are recognizing that there are issues that they can learn from other experts that are in supply chain, that are in sustainability, that are investing. They're running into the same type of issues with water, with energy consumption, with looking at things holistically. So mm -hmm. I think it's a really good opportunity because people over the last 10 months have been, I'm going to take a step back and look at under other industries and see, hey, let's not just vilify this industry, just throw out the mm -hmm. oil and gas industry. Let's mm -hmm. find out what are the, um, the gaps that they have today and how can we work together to accelerate everything towards a more circular you know, economy or supply chain. And also the fact that you know, people don't have to look at the lens and it's getting better of, okay, we need to switch our whole linear supply chain over to circular. It's going to cost too much money. Let's just punt and not do it. Right. Now it's okay. Let's, let's try this. Let's try this and see if it works. Let's try mm -hmm. this and then see if we can scale it up. Let's mm -hmm. start, look, let's look at zero waste design. I think people in the United States are starting to take that type of view and Europe is helping to accelerate that. That's what I'm finding from my lens. 
Are you, are, and, and, and again, let me double click on that because you've got an interesting view where you're looking at um, not only the uh, commonality across different verticals, right? Which is super important. But then within that commonality, um, are there certain, I'll call them kind of drivers that you're seeing, right? I mean, it's, it's a bit of a leading question because I think the answer in all of our collective heads is that there's a recognition that it's a good business practice to focus on circularity and sustainability, not just a nice to have feel good kind of thing, right? That's a big difference right now. It's still not very widely, I think, accepted, um, but how do you capitalize then on the enthusiasm, which is to feel good and help people to understand that, okay, feeling good is great and all, but actually this is gonna help your business be more profitable. You know, can you, can you kind of talk to that observation and how that's entering the conversation now? Yeah, I think like from my lens and, and from working with different experts, and I'll give you an example. I worked with a um, wonderful woman, Stephanie Benedetto from Queen of Raw, and she captures a lot of textile materials that she uses and they repurpose to make clothes you know, that would normally be sitting in a warehouse for two or three years. Mm -hmm. So I was completely shocked from working in, you know, hedge funds and software and all this technology and innovation. Why is it that the innovation isn't there? Like with, you know, tier, you know, you know, go to whatever tier 14 or 15 vendors and they're doing things on spreadsheets or using paper. Like I was just really surprised by that. But what I'm finding now is that by companies or people sharing stories of saying, Hey, you know what? We have materials that are deteriorating. We have assets that are deteriorating. The, the electronic e-waste industry is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have billions of dollars of precious metals going to landfill, you right. know, every year. And then you have, you see these videos of like, you know, young children burning motherboards, getting paid like a dollar a day. And yep. you just sit there and go, huh, I don't understand why there's billions of dollars in precious metals in landfill. And this is happening today. There's right. a problem here and it's an opportunity to make a lot more money do good for the environment, and then also solve a social problem. So like, like those three things are really going to move forward in 2021. And, and I'm excited about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great observation. And again, I think you're, 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 you're getting this format here because you're teeing up uh, Daniel very well, because that's a nice shift into how has that changed the capitalization of some of these projects from your point of view? Because you're not only looking, Daniel, at um, funding, and then there's sort of an inherent question here is, you know, are you helping to fund projects that enterprises take on in the migration towards circularity and sustainability? And then are you also funding innovations in the sector like you might do in a traditional venture kind of role, right? Um, yeah, definitely both. They're, the main thing we do is what's called mid-market impact project finance, impact Impact finance, impact investing, you may have heard the phrase, a lot of folks are new to it. It's amazing to me how long that, that term has been around and still folks right. go, what? Impact? What do you mean? Yeah. It means the triple bottom line, uh, social, environmental, and alongside profit. This is right. not, they're, they're, right, it kind of came from the more philanthropic uh, NGO or you know, not-for-profit uh, purpose-driven kind of investments. But these days, and for easily a decade, you know, go to the GIN, Global Impact Investment Network, mm -hmm. has a great annual report that explains what's going on in that space. But it, it means that it's quite profitable to be centered on environmental and social benefit. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's really it's one or the other, or maybe in some cases all three. The triple bottom line. Uh, this is kind of a parallel to the ESG side of the equation. Uh, you know, it, 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 corporations that are looking after the uh, environment, social, and governance aspects. And so, yes, uh, mid-market projects with existing tech that's really quite scalable and profitable mm-hmm. have been taking off. I suppose we've been at a tipping point for quite a while, and we've tipped. Yep. It's my, my, my experience of it, right? The, the demand, the interest, and the number of projects and developers has gone way through the roof in a good way, kind of to a next level of, of activity and of people kind of coming online with teams and project proposals that make a lot of sense. There's still and there always will be room for fundamental innovation, mm-hmm. working out issues and, and inefficiencies. Working, mm-hmm. you know, capturing waste, for example, anytime there's uh, a change in a uh, resource that can be more, more efficient, you know, a resource that's being converted inefficiently, mm-hmm. right? Often there are catalysts used in chemistry or, say, uh, the pressure in, in water pipes that get stepped mm-hmm. down. If you don't make use of these conversions, of these catalytic moments, if you don't truly um, make most efficient use of the materials, then somebody's going to come along and figure out a way to do that. Right. And they'll be more profitable, and they'll be the new leader. That's the way it right. works, right? right? These are the kinds of fundamental innovations. Uh, and you see that across every sector, you know, a- every resource you could imagine, including Scott's example, materials that would have just been lost. Right. You know, right? You know, uh, uh, a good one would be, uh, say, uh, rubber. Mm-hmm. From tires, oh my goodness, the manufacturers of tires are now sourcing recovered carbon black. Why? Because the old way of making it, petroleum, otherwise known as furnace carbon black, is dirty and getting more and more expensive. So phase out, phase in. Recovered carbon black now meets all the same specs, right, and is actually just as um, it performs just as well, in some cases a little bit better, and it can come from the tires that were used and then disposed of. Right. So, it clo- cl- you know, that's the zero circularity, uh, circular economy in, in, in action. That's one example. It's across the board and lots and lots of re- – you also get the metal mm-hmm. out of the tires, mm-hmm. and, right? And so this is also happening in agriculture – Food, food, food production, sustainable foods, on and on, examples, lots of them. But mostly in the capital markets, you know, public equities right now are still pretty frothy. Right. <laughs> right, and uh, overvalued, you know, in some areas um, with negative interest rates for, <laughs> you know, banks just sitting right. on money, private, private wealth sitting there, what do I do with it? Um, and so the, the mid-market project finance side has really been going and growing steadily with consistent results, proving how much money is to be made and doing the right thing. And that's across the board from renewable energy, certainly uh, uh, agriculture, food systems, water, materials. Um, even, in fact, so you might find this surprising, a lot of folks do. Believe it or not, there's still construction going on. Maybe luxury tourism is going to have to wait a while, okay? 
We're not, (laughs) but people are planning ahead to the day, you know, when the vaccines have kicked in and we've got good immunity. And so there's a lot of folks who are, you know, those are two and three year build outs. So we don't see a slowdown due to that aspect of the economy. I think the big controversial part to talk about, if I'm not sure you're going to go into this, but consumer packaged goods, that's interesting. Yep, yep, yep. Well, let me, let me double click, uh, or triple click, I guess you'd say with Daniel is, so inherent in, in how you approach an enterprise when you talk to them about you know, a project and you've been doing it for 30 years, you know, have your economic models or leading reasons to drive the project forward, you know, have ROI changed, have you know, uh, break-even points changed because now it's you know, through a lot of data, and I'm sure you've got 30 years of it, this isn't just a nice-to-have program. This is how to make your company more money. And given the enthusiasm and the demand now that you see for aftermarket enterprise assets in total across all industries, I would suspect that in your modeling, when you're approaching these users is to show like, hey, you guys can make your money back within probably months, right? (laughs) If you start this, it's not, you're not going to bleed cash in this type of program. Right. And I think these are some of the better opportunities in the current market. Um, Right. You know, not frothy, consistent right. results, right? right? Predictable results. Um, right. There, there, there are more modest returns in certain sectors. For instance, solar now has become, thankfully, quite popular. And at mm-hmm. least in the U.S. and developed countries, often, if you're looking to set up a, say, you know, utility scale solar farm, you might mm-hmm. get more modest returns, IRRs below, say, 10%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the price of electricity that's going to, for the offtake of, of that electricity, is, is lower because it's competitive, right? right? So, right. It's, and so it should be. But in other markets, still, where the price of electricity, there's no better option. They don't have cheap grid power. Right. Right. right? And the cleaner the power, there's an assumption that it needs to cost more. Not necessarily. Right. You know, it, it depends. Uh, we have quite an entrenched infrastructure here in, in the U.S., Right. And we're in California for a while. There was an oversupply. Right. You've heard these stories where they had to Mm -hmm. pay to get rid of electricity. Well, that those are the exceptions. For the most part, solar, wind, small hydro. Even now, we're starting to see examples of where waves can be captured, uh, tidal power. All all of these things are quite profitable. Uh, Typical IRRs. I don't know if this means anything to non-financial folks, but the internal rate of return, the profit measure that matters most can be certainly above 10% into the mid-teens, yeah. 12, 13, 14. That's, that's good money yep. Yep. by any measure, right? That, that's pretty significantly profitable. And, yeah, mostly it's quite profitable to extract and use waste for corporates that want to add, for example, utility-scale, greener, cleaner energy. It makes a lot of sense these days. It's quite – it's cheaper than coal. It's cheaper mm-hmm. than, you know, right? And so – in fact, the whole idea of renewable energy in a, as a commodity, if you can deal with the end-of-life solution of solar panels, we've been talking about that at the zero-waste side. What do you do with solar panels after 25, 30 years, or wind turbines, et cetera? You're going to have to recycle them, just like you would mm-hmm. any e-waste is what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the profit's definitely uh, uh, there. It's quite compelling. There's a lot of new jobs, good jobs, being created around that industry, and a half a dozen others I could rattle off. It's a, yeah. it's a quite a... Quite a compelling time. 
Yeah, and well, and, 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 and so those are incredible examples of where I think a lot of people's heads go, which is on power generation, right? Since that's kind of, there's a conflation with um, circularity and sustainability with the easy one, which is, you know, how do I generate power, right? So we talk about oil and gas and renewables and all that sort of stuff. And so Scott, you know, that's, but it's, it's broader than that, right? We're actually looking at what you're looking at is with zero waste, you're actually talking about every single company, right? And not only how they maybe generate the power to run their business, but what do they do with the assets that run their business? How do they manage those? How do they recycle those? How do they set that up? How does one company look at their uh, balance sheet and say, I've got a couple trillion dollars worth of assets. I should be shedding 10% of that on an annual basis and, and, and actually making money on the disposition program there. And then there's another company that should be looking at those, that shedding of assets and say, I can use that stuff, right? Used or sometimes pre-owned and never used. I mean, this is what we're finding now is, um, and I see this every single day uh, in, in our universe, is all of these major energy companies that have had projects that have stopped in the last year. And therefore they're sitting on pot. I mean, I'm talking billions, probably uh, close to a trillion or two of brand new unused assets that will never be used again by them that's sitting there as an opportunity for someone who needs a bunch of steel or pipe or controls, right? You know, so how are you seeing that shift into what we're really talking about? Because consumers take for granted, we recycle our garbage, we expect the plastics and the, you know, packaged goods. And, you know, we like to see renewable car, you know, uh, uh, cardboard. Now enterprises are catching up to that. And that requires the enterprises think about selling stuff in a way that they haven't done diligently before. And other companies revisiting how they source things because an enterprise, all, you know, almost, and I can say this, always wants to buy brand new from the OEM. And it's almost like, a, it, it feels like a risk to them to buy something that's pre-owned, right? They don't have the same certification, but that's just not true, right? So how is that in the middle of the conversations that you're facilitating for zero waste today and kind of looking forward a little bit? That's, to me, that feels like the crux of one of the big things that's gonna shift here is how these assets move through the continuum of the supply chain from company to company. Yeah, that's so true. And so, you know, um, just a quick example of this with um, companies working together, and this is what gets me excited about zero waste. We have a company that's speaking at a meeting, the meeting in January, uh, the supply chain meeting, but they're, they've upcycled over a million pounds of medical waste into infrastructure material that's going to last 80 to 100 years. And wow. so, you know, these are the type of collaborations between two big OEMs that it's really exciting to see this because they've come together and said, okay, we can upcycle this medical um, packaging material. We're gonna be able to do this, let's try it. And they did it mm -hmm. last year and now they're gonna scale it to a different level. Um, and the plastic that's being used is less expensive than virgin plastic, which wow. is amazing. And it's post industrial waste. Right. So you're doing good for the environment you're driving more efficiency in your supply chain and you're creating something that's going to last 80 to hundred years. Right. So you know, that's, that's just awesome. And, and we right. see more and more of these partnerships taking place between these, you know, these companies and, and also the government to find out how do we collaborate together to capture some of these feedstock and these waste and these materials and repurpose them. Mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. awesome. mm -hmm. And, and, and so that, you know, it, 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 it 
kind of getting into that a little bit further, but, you know, anecdotally, and I think this is another kind of factoid that's out there that a lot of people don't even realize, but, um, you know, and, and you probably see this, but in recycled, let's just talk about metals for a second, right? So if someone goes out and gets all that copper and steel and smelts it or whatever and recycles it, the output of that quote unquote recycled metal meets the same standards as brand new metal, right? I heard that from someone who's a recycler and I was like, well, wait a minute here. So you're telling me that there's no difference from a, a, a you know, uh, uh, standards point of view in the copper that I buy that's quote recycled versus the copper I buy from some new OEM that farmed it out of the ground. And he's like, there's zero difference. There's metallurgic standards that we have to meet. And I said, well, what's the problem? Why aren't you, you should, people should be buying from you left and right. It's cheaper and it's the same standard. He's like, cause people, I can't get enough. I can't get enough supply, which yeah. is fascinating. And therefore, because I'm inconsistent in my output, companies need this stuff so consistently, they can't count on my output and therefore don't buy from me because I don't have enough that's stuff. Not, it's like, I, I'm in my head nearly explode. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> You're telling me everyone wants to buy this. It's cheaper and the same quality. But the only reason you can't do it is because you can't get access to it. Like, what's missing here? <laughs> well, and, and let me jump in on this one yeah, because yeah. there are examples across the across the board, many different industries now that may, were. And I gave one, and I'll I'll uh, beat this drum a little. It's the recovered carbon black side, right? Because okay. there are now technical pathways where RCB recovered carbon black can be made consistently, exactly the same batch to batch. The good, news, right? the good news is there are ASTM standards for almost all these materials, but metals, mm. carbon, you name it, right? And, and the ASTM standards are what run, run the show. Right. So batch-to-batch -batch consistency or even continuous processes that now produce what's needed by industry has mm -hmm. changed in the last couple of years. It's not across every industry, but in many sectors, t tires are a great example. They right. can now access these materials at the same or better prices that are coming from recovered materials or they've made essentially what was one, you know, one way trip uh, fossil derived materials. They've made them renewable. Mm -hmm. Same, same in the whole waste uh, to energy sector. As, mm -hmm. And you know, to your point, and I agree with you um, first off from a corporate point of view, it really depends on waste intensity. Right? What is it? What are the main things being used by that company? What are, those are the drivers. Okay. Mm -hmm. If they're using a lot of energy, then their their energy footprint mm -hmm. is most important. If they're using other materials, et cetera, et cetera, to run the company, and that's where they need to focus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just from a basic strategy point of view, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. So the more I, I, I reference solar and wind only because they're more common. No, yeah, absolutely. I think they do. I'm not sure that everyone even still understands, but enough folks seem to get it and want solar panels on their roof or whatever it is that's gone on, right? But the, the new darling of the energy uh, world is re renewable energy from waste. Plastics, for example, as uh, Scott was giving the example of medical waste, is mostly plastics. There's so many calories locked up in that stuff, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And by... A process, there's a lot of different ones that make sense, but the, my preferred one, a lot of my partners think this too, is you got a, a thermochemical decomposition. You could even say thermochemical depolymerization, pyrolysis, gasification, these kinds of, of pathways, quite clean. Pyrolysis has no air emissions per mm -hmm. se, mm -hmm. right? And even though California got off on the wrong foot about that. But those are examples of where you can take a plastic or mixed municipal solid waste or whatever's got calories in it 
get the calories out. It reduces the, the mass of the thing significantly. You end up with a char that has heart, takes up hardly any space. If you start off with a biomass, this is a, a celebrated uh, a pathway to biochar. They talk about mm-hmm. it sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Biomass, dry biomass, which is something we have way too much of here in California. Hint, hint. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You end up with, right, quite a profitable path. And the energy that's produced from that, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense if you can secure the, the feedstock for it. If you've got the raw material in, right, then you solve this scale problem on the output, both for a consistent supply of energy and often there's three fractions. There's a solid, there's a liquid, and there's a, a, a gas component, right? The gas is really the energy. The solid is often a product unto itself. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the case with recovered carbon black, where carbon black is actually more valuable than the energy that comes mm-hmm. from, from that path. Anyway, so these are the pathways that now are well-proven. Some of these solutions have been on the market for more than a decade. Yep. Commercial operation at scale, it's no longer a question. Mm-hmm. It was quite a question. In fact, uh, being involved in the waste-to-energy space for well, I don't know how long I've been doing it, maybe 15, 16 years, it's kind of seen as a wild new frontier for a long time. You know, right. people don't really know the value of the products coming off, and they're not sure how to exactly make, you know, the technology maybe will last, mm-hmm. maybe will Well, not anymore. It's now established, and there's no doubt about it. These pathways make sense, and the big, uh, you know, Michelin North America is committed to using recovered carbon black. They're going to phase out the furnace stuff, and a lot of others are doing the same thing. So, example. Yeah, no, it's a a fabulous example, and that's exactly what we're talking about, right? Is it, you know, and again, it's to all of us on here, we've been thinking about this for a while, and probably Daniel, maybe you longer than all of us, you know, going back to 1990, uh, but it's just the timing of it, right? It's just all of a sudden, it's like enterprises just woke up in the last 18 months, and we're like, oh my God, like, how have we been missing this? they've been running at full speed, you know, trying to drive their businesses and increase sales and profits and focusing on their procurement. And there's more to the business, right? There's all these assets flowing through the business, not just for products, but that run the business that is a key, you know, you, you track it on your balance sheet. I mean, let's be honest here. The global 2000s are sitting on $187 trillion worth of assets, right? That is, that is uh, nearly two and a half times the size of the entire world's GDP, <laughs> Right? That's the accumulated asset. And that's, that's the book value, right? That's not the market value, right? So if you think about that, what that really means in, in, in my estimation is that 187 trillion is probably worth close to 300 trillion in the market, right? Because mm-hmm. that stuff's all valuable stuff, right? So that's, that delta between what's on book and what it could be sold for is the free cash that's sitting there for enterprises if they embrace this program. So it's like, hey, everybody, let's wake up here and realize you got a $150 trillion uh, war chest sitting out here of free cash that all of you can dip into if you just manage the disposition of your assets properly, right? Um, that usually wakes people up. But let me flip back to Scott a little bit. And now we're kind of looking forward. How do you look forward now into 2021 coming out of this year? I mean, we're closing out 2020 and it's been for all of us, pretty crazy. Uh, but in the context of circularity and sustainability, it's like, you know, I mean, sometimes I'm giddy just being in supply chain because everything's supply chain. But even in a subset of that or even broader, how do you want to look at it, circularity and sustainability is a really cool spot to be right now. It's sexy. Um, yeah. How does it change your view or, you know, uh, what do you see kind of looking forward now as we move into the new year? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, we have all these buzzwords out there, circularity and, and green, sustainable, zero waste, you know, climate change is, you know, and everyone's tackling these. But I feel the days of just looking at like a uh, corporate sustainability report and looking, you know, in, in the rearview mirror are over. I think now, actually, I'm confident now that companies are coming out and they're looking at ways to, you know, cut costs, look at their assets, look at their overall balance sheets, take a proactive approach to waste and really redefine it. What excites me about this too um, is six months ago, my son, his name's Finley, he's a material engineer at RPI, but he wrote a cover letter about changing mass consumerism. And, and I, I nearly spit out my coffee because <laughs> I don't talk to him about what I do for a living. Right. But his friends that are all, you know, 18 years old, they get it. They get zero waste and they have a different lens than us. So like anything else, I mean, when you see the youth embracing it, you get really excited because these kids are, you know, they're younger, they're, they're, they're very technologically advanced. They, 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 they think differently than us. And, and I've always noticed with trends, like when the younger generation's in there, it's definitely going to change and it's going right. to change quickly. So that's kind of like the view that I'm seeing is that companies are starting to come out and share their stories and saying, hey, you know what? We had this issue. We're a big auto manufacturer. We're mm -hmm. not perfect. Don't vilify us. But this is what we're doing to move towards zero waste. Mm -hmm. how, can, how can other people help us as well, even competitors? Right. What can we learn from some of the mistakes that have gone on over the last 10 years? That's where I see things moving forward for next year, where there's more transparency, there's more trust. And there, and I'm realizing too, that some of these issues, especially when I speak to, to Daniel and you, you talk about regulators and you talk about policy and you talk about geography and you talk about getting all the right stakeholders to the table, it can seem really daunting, but at times it's not. It's just getting those people together to understand things that are outside of their wheelhouse. So they don't need to, you know, like look up these words and, and, and understand them. Like putting a banker in the room with a sustainability director or someone who has a PhD in like chemistry, it can be really hard oh. because they don't understand what the other person is talking about. Right. But I'm noticing over the last six months or especially during the COVID that people now are starting to go outside of their wheelhouse and saying, oh, what can I learn? What can I learn from the banking sector? Where are they, where are they investing? Why is this important? Why can I learn from a sustainability director, even though I work on Wall Street? Like people are starting to, to open up their minds that way. So that's what's really exciting about next year. No, that's cool. And that's, that's a great also, again, kind of you know, bat the ball back to Daniel here, looking at not only advising zero waste and what Scott's doing, you know, and kind of, you know, how would you, you know, build off of what he's saying coming up to next year, but then also kind of, you know, bring it into your own firm and what you guys are doing, right? I mean, there's kind of two aspects of that, you know, one is you represent certainly a, a 30 years of experience in here, seeing something new, and you're advising Scott as a, you know, a networking group consultancy kind of matching all this stuff, right? So how do you want a group like this to be effective? And then how does that affect your own personal business and what you guys are funding and going after, right? I mean, you know, all sorts of stuff happening. Well, my big bold prediction for 2021 is that we're going to survive all this somehow. <laughs> That's provided, provided is that an asteroid or aliens or something, but you know, who knows <laughs> at this point, right? Exactly. 
yeah, to key off of what you were saying, Scott, I agree. Uh, actually, the measurement and transparency and trust aspects of this, uh, you know, trust is an interesting word. It's a feeling, right? But what it really boils down to, I think, a better definition of trust is predictability, being mm -hmm. able to predict what the other party is going to do, even mm -hmm. if you don't like it exactly, being able to predict it, understand it, make sense out of it, and work with it. Because the, uh, the more important task here, as you also said, is, is the collaboration that must unfold. It has already unfolded. Mm -hmm. It's working with others that you share differences. <laughs> mm -hmm. Share differences. Um, uh, the, the, these aren't words that you hear much, but I'm going to say it's co-opetition with frenemies. You hear yeah. frenemies, right? Yeah. What's co-opetition? It's collaboration and competition at the same time. You got to watch the boundaries and the edges and not disclose stuff you're going to regret later. Okay. But it is nonetheless that, that the, what are the defining differences? That's where the power in a relationship comes from. If we all bring the same thing to the table, then some of us aren't needed. <laughs> you know, maybe I'm the one not needed. Right. And, but so taking a leadership role to co-optate, no such word, with frenemies, right, with mm -hmm. companies that you might not normally work with, get out of the silos, get out of the, you know, Right. And, and go across disciplines and learn from everybody and everything, right. you know, right. right. Learn from everybody and everything that could possibly happen. I mean, we provide access to capital and a lot of the things that we do in our, we have an innovative model. I don't, I've never bumped into anybody else that's doing similar kind of access to funds. We, we make funds available that break some of the rules, the common sense rules of banking. We're, we're using <laughs> banks, but we're not, we're not approaching it at all in a conventional way, okay? Right. I'll, I'll leave that. We're, most folks that know banking and finance are very confused at first when they talk to us, right? Right, So, right. The, you know, the, the teaching learning piece of this, the ability to actually listen to one another, to being able to understand what somebody else is saying, that's still the gold in the current economy, you mm -hmm. know? A little trickier through Zoom, perhaps, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But but it needs to happen and it does and it is happening. So the drivers of waste to value are really less the bottom line, more the need to survive. I mean, there's economic upside in doing the right things. There's economic upside to being more efficient. Waste always pays. There's a mm -hmm. dividend from being more efficient. That's that's a given. But but designing products to use recovered material, mm -hmm. can you incorporate? Recover. It's kind of like I remember a couple decades ago, what was it? Recycled paper, right? right? Most folks didn't want to put recycled paper in their, you know, right. inkjet or laser printer. They didn't trust it, right? You know, and it's still a little more expensive. Mm -hmm. While the green stuff can be at a premium, or it actually could be less expensive yeah. depending on the supply, right? So yeah. there, there's a this room to do the right thing and to be a little bit of a leader in 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 this space, whatever that means to the parties involved have goals and lead toward them yep yep right you know uh rocky mountain institute said what well, we got about a decade to decrease carbon by about 50 percent right so de decarbonize everything right right well i think of, i think right Go ahead. to your to your point on that though is i think those are oftentimes the leading drivers where you know i look at someone like the ellen MacArthur foundation right who's probably you know, let's just say it, the world's largest NGO in this space, right? And they're flooded and they try to publish stuff and they work with all sorts of people and they've got these kind of leading, like, you know, why do you want to get into this stuff? And usually it's, you know, it's, 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 
driving them towards, hey, we got to reduce our carbon. Hey, we've got to reduce our footprint. You know, again, really good, nice to have. You know, what do you guys think about shifting it to like, that's great and all, but this is about profitability. This is about your company being healthier and returning more value to shareholders. Because I guarantee if you're Shell and you're sitting on 200 and you buy 250 billion, this is literally what they do. They buy $250 billion worth of assets per year. Okay. Just let that percolate for a minute. So over 10 years time, they've purchased $2.5 trillion worth of stuff. Okay. So how much of it there is currently sitting on that's on their balance sheet, like I said, and let's just say a trillion dollars. What if they liquidated all of that? They probably could get one and a half trillion back. That's 500 billion of free cash back to the business. Forget everything else. You know, this is where I'm kind of like, and Scott, you and I have talked about this. This is, this is, this is where I beat the, the, the desk a little bit. I'm like, environmentalism and circularity is awesome. But let's be honest, I'm going to speak to your capitalist heart. I'm going to speak to your profitability, right? It just so happens that if you embrace this circularity concept and your business becomes more profitable and healthier margins, you're inevitably falling into environmental patterns that are great for everybody. But we don't need to beat you up about doing what's right about the planet. I'm going to go even more selfishly. I'm going to make you more money, right, by embracing circularity. How, you know, so Scott, let me start with you. How is that, how is that changing even in our conversations, how do you feel that might change people's even pace at which they're adopting these things? Well, that's a really good point. I, I feel like, you know, from our lens, when we're, we're talking to somebody, we need to be like a chameleon sometimes. So if I'm speaking mm -hmm. to someone who, you know, is a, uh, a director for sustainability program and they're running reports, that's different than talking to, you know, a CFO. That's different than talking to a supply chain director. So I think I know that we need to change our language. I think a really wonderful article I, I read about a year ago was called word pollution. And we have a lot of that in this industry, which is really interesting because if you go to someone in finance and start talking about circularity and saving the planet, they're going to hang up on you. Let's <laughs> right. They don't care. They don't care because that's not, it's not, they don't care, but it's what's in front of you. What's the shiny object? What's preserving your job? what's driving your company. So mm -hmm. when you go in and you speak to someone from, you know, a, a decision maker that's a bean counter, let's talk about assets. Let's talk about profitability because there's so much that we can sink our teeth into with inventory and with, you know, depreciating assets and all these different um, things that happen at a corporation where they're not efficient. But let, I've worked in Fortune 500 companies. Let's the fact is the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing many times, mm -hmm. but that's okay because they need many companies just don't know where to start and they're intimidated. So they walk away. Right. Um, and, and, and I understand because there's a big misperception that it's a cost center and they're going to be vilified. But at the same point, if we jump in and roll up our sleeves and we have a roundtable discussion with other experts and we can touch on these points, their lens is going to change like just like it does with my, my my son or someone who's 18. It's very hard to teach someone who's like a 55-year-old CEO about right. changing their linear supply chain, of course. Right. Um, but when you start talking the same language with them, all of a sudden they open up and they start listening. So I think there's a really big opportunity for this, especially for the C-level suite next year. Yep, yep. Daniel? Well, it is about profitability. It always was and it always will be uh, unless you're a nonprofit. 
In right. which case, it's still about profitability. You just don't get to keep the profits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. Um, yeah. No, I agree with you. I think the real question, the real issue, the um, touchstone, the challenge in all of this is the time horizon for profit. Is it right. going to continue to be about the quarterly earnings and nothing else? Mm. You're going to milk that, you know, the cash cow <laughs> until it falls over, <laughs> okay? Or you're going to lead a little. Right. You know, draining the last bit of a familiar profit stream because it seems like it's the fiduciary responsible thing to do is one thing. But leading in a new direction for the longer term, sustaining profits and more of them, that's the real, the real goal. Right. The quarterly, it's a big problem in capitalism that yeah. we are so right beholden to the near term, uh, the popularity contest. They, they call it right in the public equities. Yep. It's the popularity of a stock and the frothiness right. that can come from, oh, you know, supply, perception of limited supply and demand. No, sorry. It is not a weighing machine. It is a voting machine, the public mm-hmm. equities. The mm-hmm. weighing of something, the value of the thing is what's told over time. And the sustainability of that really ultimately as a, reflection of what's going on in the entire supply chain all the way including the consumer and then the end of life for that product how does that story get told right and right and and what are the longer term future revenue streams and ultimately the margin contribution that companies need to be looking for now that's the real question right that's that's a fabulous point and 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 and, you know like like all things and i knew this is going to happen it always happens every podcast I look at the clock and I realize, oh my God, 60 minutes just went by. <laughs> so I have a sneaking suspicion we probably could go for the next six hours without even breaking a sweat. So, uh, but I do want to, I do want to be conscious of time because, because, you know, for both, but for all of us, but also for even the listeners who listen into this stuff, because there's so much information in here. So, you know, any, any last minute thoughts, Scott, um, you know, on just kind of what's coming up or even for zero waste or just closing out the year? Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like kind of a selfish plug, but I would go into companiesforzerowaste.com, you yeah. know, check out our website, what we're doing. I think a big part, a big part of the movement moving forward is for people to get out of their comfort zone. And yeah. and just I would say, you know, in my humble opinion, if people are coming in and they want to learn, they can just come to our meetings and hear what 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 is going on. Um, and really just open up with this, you know, kind of clear head and lens over you know what, what we know today may be gone tomorrow. Things are going to move really quick in 2021. And I'm feeling a huge pent up demand for this. Um, and, and, and what does that mean? It means the companies are going to start working much more efficiently. And we can learn so much from our peers instead of working in silos. And I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. Yeah, yeah that's great. Dan- Daniel, same, same question. Well, I think that thing to look for and expect and hope for uh, from all sides is complete transparency in the Mm -hmm. supply chain. Measure Mm -hmm. everything and be as transparent as possible in order. That's actually earned trust. Mm -hmm. The transparency of reporting on progress made as well as distance yet to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, To to, quote was it uh, Tom of Tom's of Maine, something about, you know, it's not about perfection. There's, there is, I mean, no such thing as a rival in this, in this work. It's continuous improvement. It's not about perfection. It's about progress. Right. And also the rate of progress. 
okay, uh, sincere efforts to, to do the right thing, accelerate that, get on with it, Yep. really focus, hunker down, double down, invest heavily in getting to the right result. And, and then you get to talk about it. That's it. Yep. We want to know. Everybody yep. wants to know. Well, and, and Scott's got the form with which to sort of, you know, champion those results. So this is, this is again, great way to wind up, great way to wind up the year. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit different from all, well, it's not different. It's inexorably tied supply chain and circularity, um, you know, because it's a key component of the evolution of supply chain. Technology is going to drive this transparency, right? And it's going to allow us to start measuring and seeing and, you know, gauging each other and how we're kind of performing. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a key conversation that's going to continue, but I think not only are you going to see innovation, you know, Daniel, from your point of view, in just a lot of companies going into the sector, just even in simple things like recycling, uh, but then Scott, obviously through zero waste, I think your participation rates are going to go up, which you're probably already seeing. And, and, and actually 2021, we're going to start seeing real action, right? Publishable case studies and things like that. It's super exciting. It's just a great time to be in this space. So um, I want to thank both of you guys for being on here. It is and like I said, I, we'll, we'll do a continuation of it, and, and we'll obviously participate, Scott. You know, in the December 17th zero waste uh, roundtable, and many of those there. And you know, Daniel, it's just a pleasure to meet you this morning. So it's really fun, guys. Likewise. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext at request.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Request platform at supplychain.request.com. Request allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.request.com.